Hello and welcome to the LRV podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Regular listeners may be expecting to hear Alan Bennett reading his diary for the year. I'm sorry to say that isn't to be since for the first time since 1982, the LRV is not carrying extracts from Alan Bennett's diary this year. He says that his life is so dull he won't inflict it on readers. If it suddenly gets more interesting, he promises he'll let us know. So instead, today we're going to continue our series talking to some of our contributors about their favourite pieces by other writers from the LRB archive. To start with, we'll be hearing from Tom Crew, Patricia Lockwood and Deborah Friedel. And then in the second half, you can listen back to three conversations we run at the end of previous episodes with John Lanchester, Rosemary Hill and Colin Tabeam, who, as it happens, chooses a piece by Alan Bennett. But first, here's Tom Crew. So Tom, how did you first encounter the London Review of Books? Well, I was at university and I had a friend who had a, I'm sorry to say, a large, very large stack of unopened London Review of Books uh, on her chair. And uh, perhaps some readers are familiar with this experience. I hope hope not. But uh, there was this pile and she said, oh God, I can't get round to reading these. You know, but it is great. It's a great magazine, but I can't get round to reading them. And so I said, oh, can I take some of them off your hands? And I did. And I remember sitting and, and reading them in, in bed and being sort of astounded by the the quality of it and the the quality in both senses, the quality of the writing, but also the the quality of the magazine, the fact that it said different things in different ways and covered different subjects from what I was used to reading at the time, certainly in much more depth than with much more zest than the newspapers. So I was I was immediately attracted by that form, the essay form as it was practised in the LRB. And I was a reader from then on. And that's about 15 years ago. And if you had to pick one piece from the archives that you would take to your desert island, having to abandon the stack in the, in the lifeboat, which, which, one, which one article would you pick? Well, I, lo- I love... Terry Castle's piece about Jane Austen's letters, which was published in the LRB in 1995. I think it was Terry Castle's second piece, the beginning of a of a glittering career in the pages of the LRB. And in fact, it doesn't have all of what would become Terry Castle's famous uh, mannerisms, her exclamation marks, her kind of bouncing, skipping prose. It's a slightly more sober piece, but it advances... Uh, an interesting and controversial at the time uh, argument that Jane Austen's letters reveal a sort of latent homoeroticism, an interest in women's bodies and women's clothes and particularly in the body and clothes of her sister, Cassandra, who she was very close with and who she shared a room with. And I think Terry Castle says that she shared a bed with her. And Terry goes on to explore this interest in the female uh, through Austen's letters. And it's a very interesting, very still suggestive and almost provocative piece. But uh, what the letters page reveals is that it was, in fact, hugely controversial at the time and got the LRB into some hot water. I think partly on account of the title that was given the piece on the front cover of the LRB, on on the rubric, which says, I've got it in front of me now, says, Terry Castle, colon, was Jane Austen gay? 
question. Yeah, but it's hard to that, <laughs> and it it made its way onto Newsnight. That whoever was presenting Newsnight brandished the the issue of the paper. But it's perhaps it's a sign that we've the world has advanced. That it's hard to imagine anyone getting exercised about that question. Well, yeah. there's a very well exactly. It's like like many of those scandals. It does seem to be obvious that what's really driving the controversy is the distress at the idea that this canonical author might be gay that it's just so it's almost a slur it's seen as a slur even though terry castle did not at all suggest that austin was gay and it was a mischievous headline on the part of the lrv and it's actually one of the first letters on the letters page in response to this piece is from terry castle and it ends with her saying it is neither a crime nor a sin to love in whatever way one is able a person of one's own sex and again it is hard to it is hard to imagine that being needed uh that statement being needed in a letters page in 2023 so yes we can see we can see the the growth there I don't think we should talk about the letter where from the man who thought she was a man because that opens a whole the, the woman <laughs> who thought the woman who thought the she was a man is slightly more it's slightly but, more interesting than that yeah, yeah. I mean it is a good first line in the letter Terry Castle must have a gruesome imagination he states in his lurid review of Jane Austen's letters so yes and then it is quite nice to get have the we wonder what Miss Macdonald would have written had she been alert to the fact that Terry Castle is a woman did that piece illuminate the novels for you or change the way you read the novels or make you read them yeah, in a different I, light? I think it's one of the things that the letter page, the the many, many letters this piece generated reveals is that it, it did prompt discussion about the novels and the relationships between women in the novels and whether actually the women in the novels are more interested ultimately in uh, their fellow women or perhaps especially their sisters or indeed the sisters of the men they are interested in. And Terry Castle suggests that um, the heroine of Northanger Abbey really marries her beau to get closer to his sister. And there's also the argument made in the letters that uh, Elizabeth Bennet marries Darcy just to be closer to Miss Darcy. So there is there is a suggestiveness there in the piece, a way of looking at these novels as um, homoerotic in that larger a looser sense as being very concerned with women's bodies and women's feelings and priorities and whether that explains why the men sometimes seem like handsome ciphers rather than the fully rounded consciousnesses uh, that are Austen's heroines. And the, the title on the page, which presumably, rather than the cover of the <clears throat> magazine, which presumably is taken from the piece, was Sister, Sister hyphenated sister the sister sister bond i mean and it seems to me more plausible that elizabeth marries darcy to stay close to jane who's marrying bingley than that i mean darcy's sister doesn't seem such a i find it quite hard to no, remember that's, her but, that's, but, the, yeah, but the jane yeah. the jane lizzie bond is really important and by yes. marrying her brother-in-law's best friend she gets to stay close to her sister yes exactly so there are there are all these um nice ways of looking at it um i think it's it's typical of the lrb's sense of fun that sense of mischief um a willingness to 
poke the sensibilities, the fustiness of uh, some sections of academia and society. And you can see the playfulness with which the editor is responding to some of these uh, rather huffy letters. And I also think it's typical of the LRB that this uh, English professor in America, Terry Castle, should have gone on to write such an extraordinary range of of pieces. You would not guess from this piece about Jane Austen uh, quite what an amazing and stylish and unusual writer Terry Castle would become in the pages of the LRB or the range of subjects she would cover. And even to follow the career of Terry Castle through the LRB archive is to get an education in the kind of paper the LRB is and the kind of writing it has supported over the years and continues to support. So I think it's a very good place to start. Patricia, how did you first come across the London Review of Books? Right. So I was not in a situation where it ever would have been included on like newsstands that I had access to. So it was the internet. It probably would have been a link um, on Arts and Letters Daily, which I did read religiously starting from even the late 90s. So it would have been there. I wasn't always paying attention to the names, um, but one name did stand out in particular, and that was Jenny Diskey. There was something clearly outsider-ish about her. And I was actually just reading, you know, that crazy Doris Lessing book, The Memoirs of a Survivor, which is like, you think it's going to be crazy in one way, and instead it is crazy in like a completely different way. And so you you have this, this Emily character who is, you know, the adolescent Jenny Diskey. So I was really thinking about her quite a lot lately, you know, in this environment. Um, but reading those pieces that spoke very directly, I think, to the reader. And then, of course, um, like her cancer diaries, as I thought of them. And it might have been the first time I understood that there was kind of a separate kind of thing that you published, the quote-unquote diary, which I, I honestly do feel like my pieces, most of them fall really in that category as opposed to straight criticism. It's like, you know, a diary of the reading of this book that you can take as like a critical essay, but really feels more personal in some way. So I, I do identify with her on, on those grounds. And the first time you saw a physical copy? Ah, that would have been when they published my poem, The Hornet Mascot Falls in Love, which yes, is a bestiality poem. And we should dig that up because like the main thing I remember about it is that the Hornet mascot is like really ripped. He's got all these abs. Um, The poem was inspired because in America, we actually do have these Hornet mascots. They're like big bees, but they're also men. And for some reason, we agree that they are absolutely like jacked and they have just like so many abs. And so I imagine this relationship, you know, why give him this, this eminently able body if he's not going to do something with it right this mascot is pacing up and down the sidelines like what's catching his eye the cheerleaders of course like the pyramids of cheerleaders the 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 somersaults the flips the splits um so i imagine a a mascot you know dreaming um of the cheerleaders as as the game is played and you mentioned bestiality because the piece you're going to talk about is a review by Wendy Doniger from 1994 of a book called Dearest Pet on Bestiality, which provoked a huge number of letters from readers, not because of its ostensibly controversial subject matter, but because it happens to include a limerick in French. And the correspondence went on for months arguing over whether or not French limericks can exist. So I think this this was potentially proposed to me, because I, I would be interested in the limericks part 
not so. I did not care about that at all. I mean, I sort of got down to the end and was like, Gerald Long, was it? What is he talking about? Yes, Gerald Long in Paris, he wrote the first letter, enraged by the idea that limericks could exist in French. He was so enraged about this. And he's like, there there aren't limericks in French. She had quoted one. She hadn't said, you know, this old French limerick beloved of, you know, like Frenchmen everywhere. She was just like, here's a limerick. It's in French. He had a huge problem with this. But no, I barely even cared about that part because I got so stuck up at the top. First of all, I think her lead is so excellent. (laughs) Animal lovers who read this book, and no one else will or should read it, will not be able to put it down, but they will come away from it feeling vaguely uncomfortable. There's so many negatives there that you almost have no idea who is supposed to potentially be reading this book. Second of all, it really reminded me of that spate of books. I feel like it was in the mid-90s, probably to the early thousands, that were all called like a primate's paw and they would be so general but it's sometimes like they would always progress to these like insane outrageous generalities like women who mostly dream about themselves they were just full of things like that and I'm kind of charmed by it possibly because I can't imagine how such a book like comes into being like who would want to read it who it's for but just like I don't know if we still have books like this and yeah as I'm going down I'm mostly interested in the fact that the book seemed to contain what Wendy describes as genuinely pornographic illustrations. That made me very, very curious. She said that they were almost never like referenced in the text, but they were just there. These like pornographic animal illustrations that did kind of make me want to look it up. The other thing that really struck me throughout is that. So he talks a lot about dogs, right? which we expect everyone like dreams about going to prom with a tall husky but then there's also like a lot of talk about and cats and I just don't feel like that's as much of a thing because in the piece a lot of times it's I cited several times it's like dogs cats and rabbits which again and several times Midas cited the soft fur so that for him was a thing and not to like cast particular aspersions on Midas but so I'm thinking a lot about this you know because I'm keeping an open mind I have three cats in my home I do little voices for them constantly you know the boy we like refer to him as like a big strong man who like loves his daddy so there are these things that you know that you are talking about you're still really not imagining yourself in an erotic relationship with these creatures. I mean, sort of that's the reason you're doing the voices, because it's not really possible, right? Do they like wisp softly against you like chinchillas? I don't even know what you do. And now I do have one cat who is particularly precious to me because she is so like, she's very disabled, quite unfit for the world. That's Miette. And you know, she she humps around. She makes these horrible little noises. I don't want to have sex with her, but I do want to be married to her. Like, so it is something that maybe in one sense I could imagine. Again, if she were my height and she's like sort of like holding out her little like paw to me with a ring, but my imagination cannot go past that. Now, Midas talks a lot about cows and donkeys. So he's like really in the ungulate, um, like, uh, bracket of things. He talks about the eyelashes of donkeys a lot, which poets also do. I don't know if there's any sort of overlap there. Um, and in terms of the way that Wendy Doniger approaches the, the subject mm. in, in this piece, 
Yeah, no, I was, I, I love to watch her work. And I really think that if I had grown up reading the LRB, I would have been like too frightened to ever submit to it, really, because reading this piece, you think like this woman and I should not be published in the same pages. Like I should be in a magazine over here that is not the same as the magazine she's working in. So I was just kind of watching her work. Um, I do appreciate that she really held him to the ethics. I didn't even think that she needed to do that, really. And she really moved with fascinating facility from from one, you know, pivot to the next, like the, the Diane Fossey interlude is a real downer. You just didn't see all of these things coming, right? And then you get to the end, and the letter is about the limerick. Just extremely surprising to me. Very, very surprising. I saw Hitchens also. He, he, he threw his hat in there, didn't he? <laughs> there is this thing that people obviously felt the need to react to the piece to respond to mm -hmm. it but couldn't quite bring themselves oh, to respond to the I actual see. subject of it so they're That's all very smart and this does seem to happen with other pieces that we um I mean the ones it's getting very sidetracked but the Andrew Hagen's piece about when James Bulger was kidnapped and murdered that the letters all very quickly became about something completely different yeah, because, so they're proxy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's I something I think the I think I think the strong feelings about the limericks perhaps strong feelings about the subject about of the, the dogs that and have cats been... and rabbits <laughs> <laughs> the long <laughs> the sinews of the cows right <laughs> okay i mean do you look at the letters responding to your pieces i predicted actually in a like a nightmarish way ahead of time that you would ask me that are we supposed to read the letters in response because i would never i would rather like crawl into a hole at the bottom of the sea I can only, you know, trick myself into writing one of these things if I consider it part of a, a historic discourse as opposed to a present one. If there's something ongoing, there's no way that I'll ever write that and I won't hear it and I won't respond to it and I will run away. So no, and I think that um, the editors have been very kind enough to not ever like send me one <laughs> except, for, you know, for for the the norberts <laughs> that do pop up because those are just like a fulfillment of prophecy and and i do like to see that i do like to be reaffirmed you know in my belief that i have psychic abilities but i like you know i did i did like going through this because you know you ever read a wikipedia entry and you think that person just led a really full life you know it's like woody harrelson was the college roommate of al gore and then like all these other serendipitous and crazy things turn out to be true i sort of feel like that is what this piece is you know as as an essay not a person like it really goes through the entire gamut of what an essay can experience in its life um so it felt like it really it completed a cycle and i really like seeing that in action because i don't pay attention a lot of times to the the latter parts of the cycle you know like um the responses you know people talking to you about them um and the letters <laughs> from norberts that pour in like you're not watching for that part as much so it's nice to see it played out safely i think in the pages of history with someone's essay that is not your own so, Deborah, how did you first come across the London Review of Books? Uh, I, I was a student. I'd, I'd read a book by Stephen Greenblatt that I really admired uh, called Hamlet and Purgatory. And I wanted to know what my betters made of it. And I found myself looking for reviews in the university library. And I read John Bossie's review in the LRB. And I was really disappointed. I thought it was um, dismissive. And the bit that really made me angry was 
he suggested at one point that he thought uh, that Greenblatt had misquoted a bit from King Lear, sort of Kent's valediction on Lear at the very end of the play. Uh, Greenblatt had used the word tough and bossy suggested this was an American misprint. You know, it should be rough. And I remember going to the library and, you know, I was going to defend the honor of American Shakespeare critics and try to figure out why Greenblatt was correct, which he was. And I wrote my letter to the LRB and I was so proud to see my name in its pages. I mean, I really thought I'd arrived. And I remember um, falling in love with with the covers first. These are Peter Campbell's watercolors. And then probably reading other pieces in that issue. But it, yeah, it took it took a few years, I think, for me to become a regular reader. So on the rough, tough thing, or maybe we don't need to go into it, but why? Yeah, so apparently what, if, th- th- this is going back um, maybe 20 years. But I, as I recall, it was um, in one of the quartos, the the T was you know sloppily printed. It, the top of it became decapitated, uh, so it looked like a sloppy R in one printing. So sometimes people thought that the word should be rough rather than tough, but it really was tough. You know, the the American wasn't wrong, and it wasn't the American's fault. I think was my feeling in the letter. And if you had to pick, impossible question really, but one piece from the archives, as it were, you'd take to your your desert island, or if the if all of the, the all of the LRB were to be destroyed and you could only saw save one one piece to discover from the, in the ruins in two thousand years time, what what piece would that be? I agonized over this question. Um, in the end, I chose uh, Hilary Mantel's memoir, um, "Giving Up the Ghost." It's the story of, of why Mantel became a writer, and how she sort of says it was almost by by default. You know, she was uh, training to be a barrister when she becomes so ill that she really you know can't function with you know normal student life, um, normal job, and sort of the one thing she can do is sit on the sofa for a few hours here and there and read books about the French Revolution, um, which in her mid-20s, she writes, you know, this incredible novel, which she won't, you know, get published for decades. And that novel is a place of great safety. Yeah, which I I think, you know, I'd I'd only been working at the paper uh, for a few weeks before Jean McNichol, one of the editors, you know, gave me a copy and said, read this. And within a few months, I was passing it out like missionary tracks to friends. No, but it's it's a it's an essay about being let down again and again by her own body. First, because you know when she's sort of three or four years old, uh, she really wants to be a boy. She keeps waiting to turn into a boy because she's in love with stories about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. She wants to be a knight errant. She's so certain it's going to happen. She's furious when it doesn't happen. And then by the time she's eleven knowing that you know she's in horrible pain every month but not know not knowing why and sort of thinking it's just her lot and then later when the pain sort of takes over her life what it's like to not really be believed by doctors that the pain is so bad she's given antipsychotic medication which really does make her psychotic uh, eventually it's not until she's in Botswana when she finds sort of an old medical textbook that she's able to diagnose herself, she realizes that she has endometriosis. And it's a story about 
you know, how she wasn't certain that she wanted to be a mother, but she thought the choice would be hers, and then what it's like to have that choice taken away from her by her illness. And the reason I come back to this piece, it's the same reason I come back, I think, to, to all of Mantel's pieces, um, is, is the style. It's so controlled. But I mean, I, I remember studying these sentences when I first joined the paper, trying to figure out how they worked. There's a structure always to her pieces that, I mean, it almost reminds me of musical composition. Often she'll take a phrase, a bit of dialogue, and then it'll repeat in different contexts and sort of accrue meaning you know, through the course of the piece. And, and this is something she, she does in her novels too, sort of in, you know, in the Wolf Hall books, internal references that um, sort of become more meaningful as the, the work goes on. But I, her sentences are just so good. Um, I mean, I, I know that she said in you know a Paris Review interview that you know every day on the the walk to school she would set herself the task of describing the weather, and the whole walk would be trying to get it as good as she could make it, um, just the right adjective, um, and that you know she wouldn't be content until she had a perfect paragraph. I mean, she may not know that you know she's going to be a novelist, but she's going to be a novelist, and when. When she died, she was promising the paper uh, a bit of memoir, and that was the thing I was most looking forward to. John Lanchester, is there a piece from the archive that's a particular favourite? The first piece I remember really cutting through and making me very aware of the paper in, in a kind of engaged, active way, it was, I was a graduate student in 1985, and it was Angela Carter the piece is called Nooves Hooves in the Trough, January 85. And um, Zangela Carter reviewing the official foodie handbook, which had just come out, An Omelette and a Glass of Wine by Elizabeth David, and Che Panisse Menu Cooking by Alice Waters, which are actually three books I own and have always really liked. But it's an absolutely excoriating thing about the cult of food and sort of food worship as a modern thing and it has this sort of brilliantly um, mordant thing uh, because it was just when the Ethiopian famine had attracted lots of attention. It's the thing that led up to Live Aid, actually, just a few months later. Uh, and she quotes the sort of juxtaposition of the foodie handbook with these images of starving Ethiopians on our screens and imagines, you know, to trudge miles across drought-devastated terrain to score half a crust of bread that bread alone was worth the journey, they probably remark, just as Elizabeth Davis says of a trip to an out-of-way eatery in France. It's absolute ouch. Um, and I was kind of outraged because I was, it was just the point, as a graduate student, that's quite a common point where you actually start getting interested in cooking because, you know, you're left to your own devices. You know, you're, you're, you've got nothing to do all day except try and avoid writing your thesis. You're living in a shared house. You're broke, so you can't eat out. And so that's quite a common point when people get interested in cooking, including me. Uh, and so, so I just developed this new interest and suddenly this thing comes along which tells you that everything's terrible. But yet, it was such an extraordinary piece of writing. And um, going back and looking again, I was, it, it's weirdly, um, it's got this very high moral tone combined with a kind of energy and brio in the writing. It's a very Carter combination. And it builds and builds this thing when she gets to Alice Waters, who actually is kind of a hero of mine, a hero of lots of people interested in food. But it builds and builds this thing about, and she talks about a ripe melon and the value Waters finds in the melon and the effort and blah, blah. And it builds this thing saying, anyone could have chosen a perfect melon. 
But unfortunately, most people don't take the time or make an effort to choose carefully and understand what that potentially sublime fruit should be. Right, that's Walters. And then Carter says, She talks as if selecting a melon were an existential choice of a kind to leave Jean-Paul Sartre stumped. This rapt, bug-eyed concern with the small print, not even of life, but of gluttony, is, I think, genuinely decadent. You know, it's got a hell of a sting, that genuinely decadent. And especially when you think that that's 1985, you know, that's when food culture in this in the UK was like a byword for kind of catastrophic backwardness. When you think that we've been moving for nearly four decades in the direction of increased obsession with food, uh, it's pretty bracing to think that it was, you know, already seeming decadent back then when, you know, was barely embryonic. Um, and that was the first thing that really cut through for me as a paper, as a thing where you come across really, really good writing that was really challenging sort of morally and ethically, while also being fun and engaging and really having that very strong sense of a writer's voice. I mean, there was nowhere else would have published that at that point. There was nowhere else you could read anything like that at that point. And also, there was no such thing as being viral back then because you know basically we're still excited about them having discovered electricity but you know it was the first thing that everyone I knew was talking about it and was quite exercised about about that and for me that felt about the point you know and I don't think I've missed an issue of the paper basically ever since um, as I say that was the thing I was outraged by and stimulated by and in terms of engaging with the LRB as a reader um, that's where it all began for me. Rosemary Hill was there any piece that you remember reading from the early days as a reader that really or even later days as a reader that really stands out yes a piece from the archive that I really loved which appeared in December 1981 under the headline Jerusalem it's Penelope Fitzgerald's review of Stevie Smith's Me Again the uncollected writings of Stevie Smith um, two of my favorite writers in one piece and I think that Penelope Fitzgerald's genius as a reviewer she was always quite concise. Every sentence is telling. I've always found Stevie Smith quite a difficult writer. I love her, but I don't... She's like Emily Dickinson or William Blake, with whom Penelope Fitzgerald immediately compares her, as somebody who's... It's so limpid what they're doing. You sometimes think, are they doing anything? And Penelope Fitzgerald, who was herself quite a difficult writer to get to know, but she opens up Stevie very beautifully quotes her as saying that she was straightforward but not simple and she has this wonderful phrase she presented to the world the face which is invented when reticence goes over to the attack and becomes mystification and I just read that and I thought oh now I understand completely and at the same time as she's doing this and mixing her own knowledge of Stevie Smith as a person in private life too with her discussion of the work and say she compares her to Blake and to Emily Dickinson. And then she has this wonderful phrase that Stevie, after her lion aunt died, Stevie learned to cook and quite enjoyed it. And Penelope Fitzgerald says, she loved to feel a young parsnip under her knife. And you think, ooh, fancy thinking of writing that. Um, and then she ends with the idea of the way in which Stevie Smith, like Emily Dickinson, like Blake, makes of this very ordinary, immediate material environment a kind of Jerusalem. 
So, Colin Sabine, is there a particular piece from the archive that stays with you? I was in Glasgow and um, I'd never been there before and I was pretty puzzled by it. And I was meant to be writing a book and there was a chapter on Glasgow, but I had done no preparation. I just went to Glasgow thinking somehow or other I'll be able to find the right people to, you know, talk to in the air, you know. And I it was an early flight and I bought the LRB in some shop early that morning in Glasgow. It was a new LRB and um, I was meant to be making phone calls. And suddenly there was this, I, I realise now it's 10,000 word piece by Alan Bennett about Andrew Motion's biography of Philip Larkin. And I don't know what it was, but it took me over for the day and it pleased me enormously. And the reason why it pleased me was that everyone was in a state over this Philip Lark. Some people thought, well, the poems are so beautiful. You know, what will survive of us is love. Isn't that the most beautiful line? Or somewhere becoming rain, whatever that means. But that was, people were saying, well, he's such a beautiful poet. He's such a, he's, he's, oh, the, the trees are coming into leaf. Their greenness is a kind of grief. You know, that will be there forever. And people will forget about his racism, his misogyny, all his wanking. People will forget all about that. And it'll just be the poet. Or other people are saying, no, no, he's a pure racist. He's a horrible man. Look what he did to these women. Look at all this pornography. Look at everything about him. It's over for Philip Lark. And, and people were in that sort of state. And into the middle arrives this figure of Alan Bennett. And I thought Alan Bennett was going to be on the poetry side. I thought he was going to say, could all these sort of, you know, lefties shut up about this? This man was a great poet, a great English poet. He, you know, church going, you know, gave me my interest in churches. So you open the piece and you realise that Alan Bennett, it struck me, didn't know what he was going to say when he started, which is always a marvellous thing. And then he becomes more and more deeply indignant at the whole idea of Larkin. But the idea is not the word, because the piece is 10,000 words long, so he can't just say, I think he's a racist. I, he has to sort of go in a very Alan Bennett way, gently, carefully, using a lot of jokes, and then actually quite moralistically. So it's very surprising to see him saying um, the following, but most men, I can't do Alan Bennett's accent, but most men regard their life as a poem that women threaten. They may not have two spondees to rub together, but they still want to pen their saga untrammeled by life-threatening activities like trailing around Sainsbury's, emptying the dishwasher, or going to the nativity play. And, um, you, you know, in other words, he's, he's looking at Larkin, like the, the general business of Larkin's bachelorhood, of Larkin's sort of surly relationship to um, marriage or to domestic life. And the way, in fact, that affected not only the three women involved, it affected them badly, but that it actually makes its way not only into his poetry, but the whole sort of sense of him. In the middle, of course, there are terribly good jokes. Um, <laughs> um, he loves that Philip Larkin um, used to cheer himself up by looking in the mirror and saying the line from Rebecca, I am Mrs. De Winter now. And um, he, he has it in for Larkin's effort to, to portray himself in the world as a recluse, as someone who just didn't want fame, who avoided fame. Adam Bennett starts to look at this. And what he does is he looks at the evidence. And what he becomes, in a way, is a sort of fair-minded Englishman, which is one of his poses. And um, he starts to realise that Larkin wanted fame. Like he was, This is him. He was going to call a halt at six, meaning six honorary degrees. Only Oxford then came through with the big one, 
the letter getting him seriously overexcited. He actually ran upstairs, says Monica. And this is a recluse? Fame-seeking, reputation-hugging. He's about as big a recluse as the late Bubbles Rothermere. Now, you're probably too young to remember who Bubbles Rothermere was, but she was famously not a recluse. She, she was called Bubbles because of her interest in champagne. So, you know, in, in other words, what Alan Bennett is doing is not taking sides on this matter. He's offering us a cast of mind. He's doing what the LRB does best. In other words, it's a mind operating sensuously, intelligently, using nuance, going back and forth, looking again at the evidence, not being sure, being very sure. And he can do this not just because he has 10,000 words, but because he has a sense of a readership, which includes me, who want this sort of response to the world, who long for it and need it, and it, it isn't anywhere else. I mean, it may exist in some other language, but I'm not sure it does. That particular cast of mind that I think that piece really represents, because this was a burning issue of the moment, this were we for or against Philip Larkin, and his piece doesn't come down on either side. It does, They wouldn't dream of doing that because it's his mind, Alan Bennett's, and his mind is working, as I say, in a particularly, it's not just nuanced, it's not just arguing with himself, he's writing. And he doesn't know what his next sentence is going to be. And once he writes it, he, he finds that sometimes it's darting in one direction. And other times he needs to pull back on that tone. So even tonally, it, it, it keeps you n not knowing what's coming next. And so I got infinite pleasure out of the piece. I ended up having a great time in Glasgow. And uh, I, I even went to a football match, which I wouldn't usually do. And um, I uh, it just cleared my mind it just made me think you know if we could all start thinking like this everything would be better but that thought didn't last for long because the whole point of Alan Bennett and that piece is thoughts like that would just come and go but what stays is I suppose that that idea of a sort of sensuous uncertainty a sort of a sort of an idea of operating not just from some sort of thin business of the mind but letting the mind wander and then seeing what you need to do to control that Wonderful. I'm going to go straight away and read that piece again. Can I, can I say one more thing? Yeah. So Dublin, oddly enough, is very far from London. You end up having your nose up against London. So all those names, your Andrew Motion, Alan Bell, are so far away, despite the fact that the flight just takes 50 minutes. So I thought when, when I started writing for the LRB, oh my God, I'm going to get to meet all these people. And um, so I, I went to a party. And I saw Alan Bennett at the party in London. And I thought he desperately needed to hear me tell him how, A, how great he was, and B, just tell him all about myself and just, just generally make him my friend and go on, you know, so go back to Dublin and say, guess who I know? And um, as I was doing all this, and he was, he was, you know, he was standing there, he was exactly as I expected. He was sort of one of those big Englishmen, sort of slightly, you know, bushy and um, distracted looking and wearing the wrong clothes. And um, I suddenly realised, oh, I, I think this is Perry Anderson, who's another famous writer for the LRB. I thought, I'm sure it's Perry Anderson. And he was being so polite and he was nodding and I was talking on and on. He was nodding. Eventually, what I did was I ran out into the London night 
having ascertained that it was Perry Anderson, and that he had gone straight over to someone, the editor, to tell the editor what had just happened. And she was nodding in a very, you know, I ran out into the London night. And that is where I still, in certain ways, remain. You can find links to all the pieces discussed in this episode in the description below. You've heard contributions from Tom Crew, Patricia Lockwood, Deborah Friedel, John Lanchester, Rosemary Hill and Colm Tabine.